<laughs> All right, you guys remember what we've been studying in this class? Scripture. What about scripture? Bible study. Hopefully we study scripture in every class yes. to some extent, right? Yes. What have we looked at so far? Yeah, we're we're going to start looking at the covenants. We're building up toward that. All right, I'm good. We've got some people who are semi-awake. Wednesday nights are a little bit rougher than Sundays, but that's okay. I understand that. Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump in. God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is authoritative, that it is clear that you've given it to us. You've preserved it for us. We pray that you would give us a, a better understanding of how it is that we ought to utilize it and to understand what it is that you've given to us. God, we pray that you would help us to be discerning in, in all things, but especially when we are handling your word, that we would divide it rightly, that we would realize that it is important, that it's your truth, that we would be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us and be able to give a defense for, uh, for the truth of your word, for the veracity of your word. And God, we pray for the kids in the next room that you would be uh, teaching them and leading them drawing them to yourself and giving the, the teachers patience and uh, helping our kids to be obedient and respectful. God, we love you and praise you. Amen. All right. So we have been looking at scripture, as you guys say, and we've been starting to build up towards a, a look at the covenants and what the covenants are going to mean um, or how we should understand and define the biblical covenants. And we'll look at some other extra biblical covenants down the road, but we're not quite there yet. Um, so I'll give a little bit of recap of where we've been. So far, we've looked at what the Bible is. We define the Bible as a divine revelation serving as a Christian's authoritative starting point. It's a pretty good, succinct definition that it is divine, it is revelation, it's serving as the Christian's authoritative starting point. If we don't start with the Bible, then we're, we're lost. We're starting uh, with our own understanding. We're starting with um, something that is not authoritative. And Sandra, you mentioned that that's one of the words that we've been focusing on, how the Bible is authoritative, the authority of Scripture, the fact that God is the one who is speaking, and he is doing so um, only authoritatively. We discuss that, that God isn't going to speak kind of haphazardly. He's not going to uh, give an option and say, well, this, you can either take it or leave it. Whenever God speaks, he speaks with absolute authority because he is king of kings and lord of lords. We, stuck, we talked about the, the clarity of scripture. Somebody tell me what the clarity of scripture is. It's clear we don't need an outside source to understand it. All right, so we don't need to go to any extra biblical sources. We can understand what God has said in his word and to suggest otherwise is to suggest that um, God is somehow deficient in, in his word. We recognize that the only deficiency lies on our part, right? That we are fallible beings and we have a, a sinful nature. And with that sinful nature comes, um, we're, we're sinful in our whole beings. So it's not just the fact that um, we have sinful tendencies, but our mind is fallen. Our, um, our faculties are not all there. That is also a result of the fall. And we talked about how God not only speaks authoritatively always, but God only speaks clearly as well. And 
one little uh, addendum, I guess, I, you could put on there is that God only speaks clearly to his people, to those who are his. Um, I say that because in my Sunday school class, we're going through parables right now, talking about um, specifically the, the kingdom parables and how Jesus said that he was giving these parables with a, a twofold purpose. One, to give clarity and understanding to those who hear and those who are his, and then also to veil the understanding for those who are not his. And so while you could add that addendum on there, I think it would be probably even more apt to say that God speaks so clearly as to communicate exactly what he wants to exactly who he wants to communicate it to. And even when we're looking at parables, uh, we should look at them understanding that God speaks clearly. Even if somebody isn't um, spiritually inclined, if God hasn't opened up their eyes to be able to see and to understand the meaning of that text, they can still look at it and know what it is saying. But God, again, because he speaks so clearly, he has veiled the, the meaning, the interpretation of that text from those individuals, which to me is just mind-blowing, that he can do two seemingly completely opposite things simultaneously, that he can clearly speak to his people and clearly veil his truth from, from others as well. And uh, one passage I want to look at this morning, not this morning, next morning. We're going to look at it Sunday morning in my Sunday school class, but this evening. Uh, somewhere, right. Uh, let's turn to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. And then when you guys get there, will somebody read verses 8 through 11? Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. Looking at how God speaks clearly, how he accomplishes what he wants to accomplish with his word, even when... Uh, when hiding the, the meaning of his word for those who are not meant to get it. Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. Who's got that? All right. All right, thank you. So, recognizing, first of all, that God is higher than us, right? Yeah, that's why he's able to speak with absolute authority and that his words will accomplish their purpose, whether it is to speak to his people clearly or to uh, clearly communicate what is not discernible to those who he doesn't intend it to be discernible. Um, God is always going to, to speak clearly in everything that he does. So we looked at the authority of Scripture, we looked at the clarity of Scripture, and then uh, last, last week we looked at the harmony of Scripture, that Scripture is perfectly cohesive, that it all works together, right? We talked about how there are 40-plus different authors uh, speaking in three different languages on three different continents over 1,500, 1,600 different years, and yet uh, Scripture is absolutely cohesive. Uh, we could refer to this as the, the continuity of Scripture, that it all fits together perfectly. And... Um, that absolutely makes sense because there is but one author of Scripture, right? And who is that author of Scripture? God. God. The Holy Spirit is the one singular author of Scripture, right? And we're going to 
take a moment to, to look at that because as I just mentioned, there are over 40 different human authors who penned the Bible and yet the Holy Spirit was leading and guiding and carrying each one of them as they were doing that. And so we call this the dual authorship of the Bible, that there are two authors for every passage in Scripture, one divine author and one human author. And we distinguish that just by adding a, a capital A, right? And as much as you might like Peter or Paul, that is not for them. That is for the Holy Spirit. And for Peter and Paul, they get a, a lowercase a to differentiate between the two. And... Um, these authors, these two authors, again, one divine, one human, are working in perfect unity with each other. They're always going to be in total agreement in, in everything that they're writing. Um, they will speak authoritatively, clearly, and harmoniously with one another. Um, I have a, a different definition for the Bible here for you. It's not a, a contradictory one to what we had before but we could understand the Bible as God's word communicated through human words. So it's God's word, the Holy Spirit authoring his word through human words. God's word communicated through human words. And uh, these two different uh, authors have been emphasized by different groups of people, especially in the last century, starting in the 1900s or so. Um, by two different groups. Uh, fundamentalists will uh, focus more on the divine author. So fundamentalism, we'll do fundamentalism. And then over here we'll put uh, liberalism. <laughs> liberalism. All right, and we could boo different aspects of both of these groups really. Um, but fundamentalism, they are uh, good to recognize that the Bible is divinely inspired. That um, 2 Timothy 3.16, what does that say? Anybody have that memorized? The all scripture is what? Yeah, something like that. I think we got it all together, right? All scripture is God-breathed, literally breathed out by God. Theanustash, right? That he is the one who spoke all scripture uh, from his mouth. We see all throughout uh, scripture phrases like, uh, thus says the Lord, right? Um, in both the Old and the New Testament, affirming the fact that the divine author, the Holy Spirit, is the one who is saying these things. He's the one who is giving this information to us or hear the word of the Lord, that he is the one who is speaking. Uh, we think of Matthew chapter 5. Remember that Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I tell you, or you have heard it said, but I say to you. And so he too is speaking authoritatively. He too is identified as the one who uh, is authoring the, the text. Uh, Isaiah 40, verse 8, says that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So it is God's word. Not only is it God's word, but it is eternal, right? And these are verses that, again, fundamentalists, love. They, they cherish that fact that the, the Bible is holy, that it is God's word, that it is set apart as his word. Uh, could I get somebody to look up Psalm 12, verse 6? And then we won't check out Psalm 19 or Psalm 119, but both of those chapters 
uh, go into great depth talking about how the Bible is indeed the word of the Lord, how it is uh, his instruction and how the psalmist holds on to it and how he treasures his law. And over and over again, a dozen times, uh, he recognizes that the Bible is the word of God. Uh, Psalm 12, 6. Somebody have that? Yeah, I'm going to let Logan read it. All right. <laughs> the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tied, tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. All right. So again, the, the words in the Bible, they are God's words. They come from his mouth, and as such, they are authoritative. And uh, fundamentalists, again, they will take God's word really seriously. They will hold it up on a pedestal and they should be praised and, and lauded for that. They will live by that and they will say, I'm not going to alter this word whatsoever, uh, which is, has a tendency to get some of them into some, some messy situations where they'll say, okay, well, the word of God is only found in the King James Version of the Bible. And that's where we have to say, okay, well, tap the brakes a little bit, right? We're, we're not going to go there with you. Or they'll say, well, the Bible never talks about... Uh, playing card games, right? Never talks about rolling dice, never talks about uh, watching movies or TVs or <coughs> going to dances. Drums, yeah, I got into a, a discussion. Uh, I'll, I'll call it a discussion with a, a fundamentalist pastor once about drums and went to Romans 14 and said, well, nothing is you know, innately bad or innately evil. It can be used either for good or for evil. And uh, he didn't really want to continue that discussion. Um, <laughs> but I was kind of biased being a drummer too, so... Um, yeah, lots of different things that fundamentalists will say, well, that's not in the Bible, so we can't really go there. That goes beyond what the Bible says. Um, and some will actually go so far as to say that because it is divinely inspired, because it is uh, authoritatively inspired, that it can't really be clear, that we can't understand it because it's from heaven, it's from God. Um, and so it can have a tendency to, um, I don't want that, um, to deny the, the clarity of Scripture, which, again, isn't all fundamentalists, but some fundamentalists will go even that far as to deny the clarity of Scripture. Well, liberalism, on the other hand, they will emphasize the, the lowercase author, the human author of Scripture. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, anybody know that? Famous passage. The word of God is living and active. All right. That's a good thing, right? Word of God is living and active. Except for, again, some people will twist the scripture and they'll say, well, because it is living and active, it means that it is ever growing, it's ever developing, it is evolving. And we need to make it applicable for today because, after all, this was written 2,000 years ago. And so, uh, this was written, you know, well before automobiles or the Industrial Revolution, so we need to make it applicable for today and start to change what the Word of God says. Uh, what about 1 Corinthians 7.12? Can somebody look up that passage for us? 1 Corinthians 7.12. What is 1 Corinthians 7 about? Marriage. Marriage? <laughs> yeah, marriage and divorce, right? And uh, how we ought to view those things. First uh, Corinthians seven twelve. What does that verse say? Uh, I got it. Alright. It says, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who was who was a believer, and she consents to live with him, he must 
So, nothing wrong with that passage, right? How might somebody with that kind of bent, that kind of persuasion, take that verse and, and twist it to their own usage? What's that? Yeah, but they could say that, I suppose. If they're just going to take that one verse in, in isolation, we'll get to that here in a little bit when we talk about contextualizing. Um, I've heard somebody use this verse before to say, um, again, it says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. So they'll say, well, this is just Paul talking. It's not, he's going away from what the Lord says. Um, again, just taking that one verse in isolation. That's not what Paul was saying at all. He was actually affirming what God had said, and he was speaking as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But people will take that verse and they'll say, again, that the Bible isn't for these days, that we need to take it and uh, make it adaptable for today, that the Bible is actually malleable, uh, which is not okay. And that's not what we should take away from the fact that humans actually authored the Word of God. I have this... um, rainbow bible that i have i haven't used it in a long time it's kind of cool because it goes through and talks about different passages and um, where god is talking where it's addressing sin or prophecy or different things Um, there are other bibles that are similar to this um, and i use that word loosely bible that will take scripture and they will color code it and they'll say well this section is more authoritative than this section because of um, different historical evidence that they have for or because of who authored it or because of what it says and how they want to take and understand what it says. Uh, that is not at all okay. And that's born out of liberalism. Yes, Melissa? I know that there are also liberals who don't like Paul. Would that yeah. kind of go with this? Where they're emphasizing the human author so they can like push Paul down because he, it's, he's just a guy. Mm-hmm. We don't really like what Paul has to say, so we prefer what this other and they'll they'll pick and choose and um, even not take all of Paul's canon, all of his corpus. They'll just pick certain books and they'll say, okay, well, this I'm going to embrace this book. Um, we've talked the last few weeks about red-letter Christians. We say, I'm just going to read the words of Christ. Sometimes they'll do the whole New Testament, sometimes only the words of Christ, and nothing else is authoritative. Uh, what's wrong with that, even using that own logic? Why is that inconsistent? Yeah, Jesus himself affirms the Old Testament, right? Uh, the, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, he affirms it all. So to say, I only believe Jesus, but then to not believe Jesus on his understanding of Scripture is wildly inconsistent. Yeah, Joseph. You know, the verse I just read, I mean, you, you see parts of it where Paul's saying, okay, the Lord, any Christian say this, or can you say this? Mm-hmm. So it's still... Well, it's yeah. nice that God could preserve his word if, if the Old Testament is not authoritative. You know, why, why is the New Testament authoritative? Mm-hmm. New Testament finds its authority because Jesus, his Bible is the Old Testament. You can't, when you start parsing out pieces of scripture that you don't like, like the ones that deny Paul, you know, well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Well, he did, actually. Yeah. It's, like I said, if, if you're just reading it for preference, you might as well 
read something else. Yep. And those red letters. How'd you get those red letters? The four human authors had to make decisions on what they were going to include and not include. It was all through them still. It's not like Jesus wrote the Gospels. Yeah. So, yep. so much inconsistency. Yeah. <clears throat> Upload it to Google Drive. That's why the four Gospels are different. Amen. Praise God, they are. All right, so the, the problem with only seeing the, the divine author in Scripture is that you might walk away saying, okay, well, we can't truly understand what that is because it is, after all, the Word of God. So that's kind of far off. It's aloof. We can't really grasp and understand it. Whereas the problem with only seeing the human authors is like, well, why would I even trust what they have to say anyway? If they're just human authors, why do I even want to explore to figure out what it is that they have to say after all? But we have to understand that, once again, there is a dual authorship in the Bible, that every verse is authored <clears throat> by both a human author and a divine author. And these two truths are not um, contradictory to each other. So I want to go through and look at a few passages. So I need some volunteers to read. Uh, who can grab Jeremiah 1, verses 1 and 2? Sandra. Acts 3, 21. All right. Hebrews 1, 1. Britt. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. Will you grab that, Ellie? Mm-hmm. And 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. Who's got that one? Yeah. Rex. Give it to me again. <laughs> 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. All right, and I'll drop those down up here while you guys are reading that. Who has Jeremiah 1, 1 and 2? The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the king of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. All right, whose words were they? Words of Jeremiah. All right, and then <laughs> shortly after that, it says that they were the words... Yeah, the word of the Lord. So again, we see both of these things working simultaneously, that the divine author and the divine author and human author are both speaking, and these aren't contradictory realities. Acts 3.21. May I please read 19-21? Please do. Peter, preaching to Israel, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that... The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. All right. So why did you want to go back to 19? Because that's the whole thought, and it's a very, very important thought for what God wants to do with Israel. All right. Good. And what do we see in verse 21? The mouths of his prophets, his holy prophets. Yep. That. The singular mouth of his holy prophets. I think it's kind of interesting. Yeah, God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So, again, God is speaking through the mouth of the holy prophet. And then Hebrews 1.1. That's a good one that we should commit to memory. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, a good part to memorize too. In these last days, he's spoken to us through Jesus Christ. 
Um, and three is good too, but we're going to focus on one that long ago God spoke to the fathers, many portions, many ways. So again, dual authorship. First uh, Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Amen. So it was the word of God. They heard it through men and they accepted it. Even though it came through men, they accepted it as the word of God. Good. And Rex, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21 this is a go-to passage for this doctrine. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. But no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Amen. And again, that came on the heels of Peter talking about his experience at the transfiguration. He says, we have the prophetic word made more sure than what he saw at the transfiguration, seeing Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And he says that men were carried along as they spoke, that the Holy Spirit was carrying them. And yet the men were, were speaking dual authorship, both a divine author and a human author. And so, because of this dual authorship, we must approach the Bible in two distinct ways. Again, because of dual authorship, we have to approach the Bible in two distinct ways. And I'll tell you right now that the, the number of thoughts and emotions that simultaneously overcame Jeremy right now, um, that was a lot. I, a lot going through his mind right now. A lot of fear and anxiety, wondering what I'm going to say next. Because, <laughs> yes, I could. <laughs> uh, because that could mean a lot of different things, a lot of scary things. So let me clarify what I mean by that. I mean that uh, because we are dealing with a divine book, who is, which is authored by a divine author, uh, we need to approach it as completely unique. We need to read it um, as if it is no other book that we are to approach it with absolute reverence, with absolute humility, being 100% uh, submissive to it, again, because it is 100% unique. And no matter uh, how much we study um, how to study the Bible, no matter how good we um, might hope to become uh, in our, our Bible study expertise, if we are doing it without... Uh, submission to the Bible, then we're, we're lost. We can't substitute head knowledge for a submissive heart. If we seek to do that, then we've already lost. And while we approach the Bible as being absolutely unique, as, uh, as we should, a book that is set apart all by itself, we also have to approach it just like any other book, because it is written by human authors, and we need to read it with normal eyes through through normal lenses not trying to spiritualize it not trying to look for a secret hidden meaning or a double meaning but we need to read it just as any other book while simultaneously uh, 
upholding it and realizing that it is absolutely holy and absolutely set apart. So to, to understand the Bible as it is intended, again, we need to embrace the authority of the Bible, the clarity of the Bible, the harmony of the Bible, and I'm going to add one more word for us, the simplicity of the Bible. We need to approach the Bible with simplicity. That is, with a, a literal understanding of the words of God, with a, a literal hermeneutic. Anybody remember what that word means? What is a, a hermeneutic? It's a science of interpreting scripture. Yeah. The art and science art of and science, yeah. interpreting scripture, right? It is our Bible study method, how we approach the, the text of scripture. Uh, Martin Luther said that scriptures are to be retained in their simplest meaning ever possible and to be understood in their grammatical and literal sense unless the context plainly forbids. So to approach it, again, just like any other book, in its literal, normal sense. Um, oftentimes, a, a literal understanding or literal hermeneutic is mentioned or referred to as a a natural approach or a normal approach to scripture. Again, without looking for secret or hidden meanings, which happens far more often than it should. Um, we have to, again, pursue the, the intention of both authors because um, they are writing, once again, in unity, the Holy Spirit is carrying along these men who are writing, and we have to pursue their original intent because to do anything else is just to seek to change their original intent or to ignore or undermine what it is that they're seeking to, to communicate to us. And uh, that just completely undermines all, all language. If language is to have any legitimate meaning at all, we have to seek to understand the author's original intent. Yeah? So the alignment of divine and human author is obviously critical, that we believe there is perfect alignment when it's written that the, the human author understood the meaning of the words that he was writing yeah. and that God knew that he would understand those words and there was no substitute meaning that was hidden from the human author, right? Yes. So could you explain how that impacts our view, say, of uh, the, all those promises through the prophets like we talked about in Acts 3, the mouth of the holy prophets, they spoke of all this restoration of Israel language. How does this alignment affect the way we interpret those passages, and how is that different from people who don't see an alignment there? Uh, because they are speaking authoritatively, because the Holy Spirit is carrying them along. They know what they are writing, because um, the Holy Spirit is carrying them along. And they have an intention to uh, speak clearly with literal words and we should approach their words with a literal understanding without trying to take and twist and, and change what they're saying about uh, these prophecies about Israel without trying to insert an understanding that neither the divine or human author had. So some people will say that the, the Holy Spirit had one thing in mind um, but the human authors were thinking something entirely different. They weren't really clicking with the Holy Spirit as he was carrying them along. And they jotted something down that wasn't what God had, well, maybe God had meant to speak that way to them, but he had a, a deeper meaning behind 
what they had written down. Different definition for Israel. Yes. Different definition for land. Mm-hmm. But and they're on the same page. Know that. And the, yeah, but the, yeah, the human author didn't know God's secret definition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and this goes back to uh, progressive revelation that we were looking at last week. If, again, using that that illustration, that model, if you were to have a disconnect between the divine author and the human author, then um, the especially in the Old Testament, the, the authors who were writing in the Old Testament, um, they wouldn't have had the understanding that the New Testament authors later had or that the, the Holy Spirit had intended for them to have later. But that's not the case. Again, the divine author and human author were on the exact same page. They, um, the human author was aware of what he was writing as he was being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Any other thoughts or questions or comments? All right. So, um, again, we have to, to understand this language literally, because if we don't, um, we're just off on the wrong foot. This is what all of our, our human language is structured around, a, a literal understanding of what the author originally meant. We teach this to our kids from a, a very early age, right? We ask them to take the, the little red square or the little orange circle and to put it in the box, right? And if they put the wrong one in, then we correct them because they're, they're learning. We're trying to teach them. We're trying to teach them the difference between yes and no and right and wrong and good and bad. And um, our, our postmodern world has just taken that and uh, turned it upside down. But we definitely can't do that with our interpretation of the Bible. Uh, we don't want to fall off on that, that liberalism um, cliff, right? That would be no bueno. That's not what we want to, to do. And uh, there are people who wouldn't put themselves in a liberalism camp who can do the same thing. They'll, they'll put a, a different interpretation or a different spin on the text other than a literal understanding, other than approaching it to see what does the author say? What is his understanding? We shouldn't be looking for a deeper spiritual understanding. We shouldn't be looking for what does the Bible say to me because it wasn't written to me, right? It was written to these other people. And that doesn't mean that it can't have application for us, but we have to realize that every text in the Bible has one meaning, one interpretation. That doesn't prevent it from having numerous applications that we can take what God has said in his word and find out what he meant when he said that to the original author and then ask ourselves, okay, well, how does that apply to us? What can, can I do with that in my day and age? But we shouldn't be looking for secret meanings in the text. Uh, another quote here. This is from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics. And they agree with, with Luther and his statement. They say that we affirm the necessity of interpreting the Bible according to its literal and normal sense. So again, not looking for hidden meanings, according to his literal and normal sense. The literal sense is the grammatical historical sense. That is the meaning which the writer expressed. <clears throat> Interpretation according to the literal literal sense will take account for all figurative figures of speech and literary forms found in the text. I'm going to read that last part again because it's important. It says that inter- I'll try to read it again. Interpretation according to the literal sense will take account for all figures of speech and literary forms found in the text. 
So oftentimes our hermeneutic, our approach to scripture is criticized uh, because we take a literal approach to the text. And they'll say, well, you don't really take all those things literally, do you? And we'll say, well, no, we don't take them with a, a wooden literal understanding that everything is absolutely as it says. But again, as that statement says, it accounts for different figures of speech and literary forms that we find within the text. So uh, you think about John chapter 3 and how Jesus said, well, if you want to, to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. Well, he didn't mean, again, entering into a mother's womb. He went and he clarified that. That's not what he's talking about. He was speaking with a, a figure of speech, and he clarified that even within the, the text. And we can understand that only by approaching that with a, a literal interpretation, with a literal hermeneutic. We can understand the different figures of speech even within the text. <clears throat> he does the same thing in the next chapter, talking about uh, talking to the woman at the well about living water, right? Whoever drinks this living water shall never thirst, and it will become in him a, a well of water springing up to eternal life. But this was a, a figure of speech. This was a, a metaphor that he was using. Uh, John chapter 6, where he says, I am the bread, right? Um, he wasn't really saying that he is bread. He was making a, a comparison there. Um, later on, he says in that same chapter that you must eat my flesh. He was making a, a comparison, an illustration. He was saying, you must believe in me. And he was using a figure of speech to communicate that. Or again, John chapter 10, I am the door. Jesus wasn't calling himself a door. And that's a, a popular one that people will say, you don't really believe that Jesus was a door, do you? You don't really believe that, that Jesus said to, to eat his flesh, do you? And that's assuming a, a wooden literal interpretation whereas we are approaching the Bible literally to see what the original author meant, again, a, accounting for different figures a, of speech. It's a straw man. Absolutely. Taking someone's point of view and twisting it and setting that up as what you believe mm -hmm. and then knocking it down. Yeah. And because of that, a lot of people will shy away from that, that label, that term of interpreting the Bible literally or being a literalist. It's just a, a game of semantics, especially when people play that game. Yeah. The, uh, the book I shared a couple weeks ago, uh, Corey Marsh's book, A Primer on Biblical literacy, uh, literacy, he talks about in that book how seeking for the intended meaning of the human author is actually the only ethical way to read your Bible, which I thought was a pretty important point. That if you're doing another method where you're putting hidden meanings in there or just not even considering what the human author wanted to communicate, that's actually a very unethical treatment of anybody's communication, how we wouldn't want anybody to twist our words. Yeah. If we go to the Bible and we're not seeking the intended meaning of the author as the meaning of what it says, it's actually really unethical. Yeah, absolutely. Good. So we want to account for different uh, figures of speech, different forms, literary forms that we find within the Bible. There are a number of different writing styles, number of different kinds of writing in the Bible. Um, close to half the Bible is historic narrative. It's telling a story, going through something. Um, there's poetry within the Bible. There's um, discourse within the Bible, just a, a logical sequence of ideas. You can identify those with different words like yet and therefore and for this reason. Uh, and we need to, as we approach the Bible and, and 
seek to read it like any other book, right, with a, a literal understanding. We need to seek to identify those different literary types. And um, again, we, we have to approach it with a, a literal understanding and determining the style, recognizing there are different styles within the Bible. Our job is to read the Bible literally in order to understand the different literary types. Does that make sense? I know it can come across confusing, but it's probably just me. Um, also, there are different ways that we can draw out of the text, even approaching it with a, a literal understanding. Um, we can see what is explicitly said in a text, and then we can see the implications sometimes behind the text, what is implied um, that isn't exactly said. And um, we can get in trouble if we imply too much without the text being explicit and explicitly saying it as it says it. An example of this is uh, several times throughout the text it'll talk about God um, relenting or God changing his mind. And if we think, okay, well, because of that, because God relented, because he said he was going to do one thing and then he, he drew back and he changed his mind, that must mean that God is like us. That must mean that God doesn't know the future, that God is limited in his understanding. That is a, a bad uh, implication to make out of the text, especially when we have other explicit texts that say, I am the Lord and I, I never change. I am the first, I'm the last, I am the, the I am. Uh, we can't overwrite those explicit texts with implicit uh, understandings that we might think we see in the text and, and draw out of the text. We need to see it explicitly in the text. Um, another quote here from Ray Lubeck. He says that the best manner of understanding a passage is always the one that fits the entire flow of thought within the big picture of the entire paragraph, section, and book. Stated negatively, nearly every misinterpretation of the Bible betrays a failure to respect the larger context. Stated positively, sensitivity to context is the single most decisive factor in understanding the intended meaning of any passage. So... He brings up this, this issue, this point of context, and how context is so important, how it aids us so much in our understanding of what the Bible is saying. Approaching it literally and approaching it contextually, realizing that there is a context to, to every verse. And we can see this. Um, it kind of acts like um, different con concentric circles kind of going out. I think of a, a wave. That's my poor attempt at a wave. You throw a, a rock in a pond and you see these concentric circles going out, these different ripple effects. And we always want to start with the, the text. So we can start with the verse and see, okay, well, what does the verse say? And then we can look at the, the surrounding verses. And those can give us additional context, additional understanding of what the author had in mind. We can go out from there and look at the, the paragraph go out and look at the chapter. We can look at the, the book and uh, the at different books by the same author. Uh, we can look at different books within, um, I should do a, a lowercase a, right? Different books within the, the Old Covenant or New Covenant. And as we, we move out, we gain more perspective, more insight as to what that original verse uh, 
might actually mean, what it is trying to portray to us. But what is really important is that we are working out this way, right? That we start with the verse and see what does this verse say and how should we understand it. We're working out, not working back in. The immediate context should shape our understanding of the the Bible as a whole. If we work backwards, we can end up in some, some pretty funky places, especially if we get to our understanding all the way over here of uh, the Bible, and we can even go beyond this. We can um, see extra biblical resources um, and how those might help us in not interpreting what the verse says, but giving some additional insight. Um, but if we start out here with the Bible, and our understanding of the Bible isn't based on uh, the Bible and the the more immediate context, and we work our way back this way, then we can end up imposing on the text something that the text never intended for us to, to have in the first place. Um, we always need to, to start with the verse and, and work out. And perhaps you guys have heard the, the phrase before that we should never read a Bible verse and never read one single Bible verse without reading the, the greater context, right? That we need to um, not have one isolated verse because it is so easy to, to prove text, to just grab one verse and take it and rip it completely out of its context and make it say whatever we want it to say. This is something we can all be guilty of, um, but it's especially frustrating when you have somebody else knocking on your door and they're taking a, a verse out of context and, and proof texting it. We don't want to be guilty of doing that ourselves. Um, does this make sense? How we want to work out and not in? Because if we work back in, uh, that's how we can kind of end up with some of the, the bad interpretations we've been talking about in recent weeks. And we can say, okay, well, of course I can see Jesus in the Song of Solomon. Uh, not if you start with the Song of Solomon and you work out uh, and build into the greater context of the Bible, you're not going to see Jesus in the Song of Solomon. Yes? Would you say that if you were working the way you shouldn't, you could even like start with some bad preconceived Absolutely. Ideas? Yeah, we all have presuppositions and we need to do our best to, to lay those aside when we're coming to the Bible. I mean, there are good presuppositions that Jesus is God, right? That the, the Bible is, once again, it's authoritative, it's clear, it's um, a number of different things that we should be bringing to the text, but there are so many different pre-understandings that we want to, to shed and that other people don't, and it affects their interpretation. That's a, that's a good point, Joseph, because this is work. That's the problem. Mm-hmm is that it's a bunch of personal work, whereas what a lot of people want to do is just start with the system. Just get, just tell me, tell me the doctrine. You know, tell me, tell me the system. And I'll have my system in place, and that way when I read the Bible, I know what, what I should take seriously and what I shouldn't, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot easier, but how are you going to pick a system if you don't know your Bible? Yep. So we have to do the work before we can get to uh, saying, okay, this system's good or this one's bad. Mm-hmm. And it can be tempting to, to adopt a system. Systems can look really, really nice and, and shiny because it's something that you can have that gives you, uh, it's cohesive, right? And it, it all lines up, it's nice and pretty, and um, it can help you make sense of what you might consider some of your loose ends. 
Um, it can help you make sense of these doctrines that are a little bit more difficult to, to grasp or to reconcile about Jesus being absolutely divine and yet human, or about sanctification being a, a work of the Holy Spirit, and yet we are working alongside of the Holy Spirit. And having a system, it will kind of um, patch everything together. But if it's not starting with a verse, then we should ignore that, that system and start with the Bible. That's why we like to tell you know, non-Christians, okay, you know, get rid of your presuppositions and just start with the text and, and yeah. you know, seek out their actual meaning. So. Yep, good. All right, uh, a couple of things that reading in context will allow you to do and will aid you in is looking for repetition, not just within the verse, but again, within the surrounding verses, within the, the chapter, within the book. Uh, in my Mark class, we've identified some of the, the main words that we see all throughout Mark, you know, immediately. And Mark is focusing on the authority of Christ. And we can see these things by looking at the greater context. Um, but we don't start there. We start with the verse and work our way out. Uh, can help you see the, the relationship between different verses and what's being said and who is speaking and how one verse relates to the next. Uh, a cause and effect kind of thing that you're going to miss by just looking at one single verse outside of context. Uh, it will help you see conditions if there is a, a condition that's attached with a, a promise or a command. You're not going to always see that by looking at one verse in isolation. So uh, let's turn to Ephesians 5. And let's see if we can put this into practice. What's, that's cool. What's going on in Ephesians 5? What is that chapter about? Anybody know off the top of their head? Husbands and wives. Husbands and wives, good. And earlier in the chapter, what's going on? It's talking about um, sorry. Um, Against such things there is no law. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Talking about the, the fruits of the flesh and what the fruits of the flesh look like, how we are manifesting the, the flesh, and then the fruits of the spirit and how those two contrast, love, joy, peace, patience, all those, how those contrast with the fruits of the flesh. And then it gets into, as you mentioned, uh, these different relationships, particularly with husbands and wives. Well, uh, speaking of our relationship with our spouse, um, what do you guys think about Ephesians 5.22. And what does our world think about Ephesians 5.22? Is that a popular verse or an unpopular verse? <laughs> Not too popular, right? Wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Well, people will often say, well, in order to really understand that, you have to go back to the verse before and look at verse 21, which says, and be subject one to another in the fear of Christ. And somehow in their mind, they think that verse 21 will negate verse 22, that it's really saying that husbands are sub subject to their wives just as much as wives are subject to their husbands. But we, we can't understand the text like that because that's not the way that the text was laid out for the original author, right? We need to seek the original author's meaning and the intent that he had for the original recipients. Uh, if we take that understanding that... Um, husbands are to submit themselves to their wives just in the same way that wives submit themselves to their husbands. Uh, what happens when we get down to verse 1 of chapter 6? It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. We'd have to say, well, that's, that's both there too, right? That oh, 
the parents have to obey their children. Or in verse 5 of chapter 6, that slaves are to be obedient to their masters. Um, all these other verses are flowing out of verse 21. In verse 21, he's wrapping up uh, the, the fruits of the Spirit, what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. And he's saying, and you guys are all to be subject to one another. And then he gets into specifics. Well, what are these relationships to look like? Who's to submit to who? And he says, well, wives are to submit to their husbands. And husbands are to love their wives. And children are to obey their parents. And slaves are to obey their masters. So he is going into specifics on this submission. We need to read it progressively, not read it back uh, backwards. Because that's not how it was written to us. And we get that by looking at the, the larger context, not just a, a single verse. Um, let's look at another oft-misquoted passage, Philippians 4.13. Who knows that verse? All right, that is it, yep. The Tim Tebow verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that verse has been ripped out of context and misused so many times, right? But if we go back and we look, uh, starting at verse 10, it says in Philippians 4.10, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. That's what he's talking about, being content, living in that circumstance. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. So he's talking about living in affliction. He's talking about living in poverty as well as living uh, well off and being able to, to get by in both situations. And if we don't understand that greater context, then we're not going to walk away with the original understanding that the author had, right? Uh, let's look at one more, again in Philippians. And this one is uh, pretty important. Going back to Philippians 2.12. Philippians 2.12 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If you just take that in isolation, and it happens often that people say, well, you have to work out your salvation. You have to do it in fear and trembling. It says right here in the Bible. And you don't go on to the next verse. You could have a totally whacked theology that's works-based, right? But the next verse says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This goes back to that uh, double aspect I was talking about of, of sanctification, that we are working out our, our sanctification and God is also working with us. Uh, another one, just a little bit farther up in, in the text, uh, verse 7, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Uh, this verse has been twisted very badly to say that Jesus has emptied himself of his deity. Anybody tells you that, you have to say, that's not a Christian doctrine, right? That is unorthodox. Jesus never emptied himself of his deity. He was always divine. He was always God. Um, and if you just look at the, the greater context, go back and start at verse 3 and work through verse 8, you'll see that it's talking about uh, the humility and how Jesus was an example of humility for us. So it is vitally important, uh, eternally important in some 
circumstances to, to look at the context, because if you don't, you can take and, and twist the, the Holy Word of God, which is authored by the Holy Spirit of God. So, again, the fundamentalists, they, they had that right. The, the Bible is holy. We need to preserve it. We need to care for it and approach it reverently and submissively, um, also realizing that he was carrying along human authors as he was authoring. Yes? They or we? Uh, I don't know what I said. The, the fundamentalists, they got that right? Um, yeah, speaking about that particular flavor of fundamentalism that was in my mind when I said that, yeah. Um, yes, we are. I put the fun in front of it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's the, the problem with Christian labels. They mean so many different things to so many different people. So to label yourself as a, a fundamentalist or an evangelical or uh, different things, it's going to mean a lot of different things to a lot of different well, people. we're not liberals. We are certainly not liberals. Just You're right. saying little O orthodox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's little O. Little O. Yeah. Little O. Yeah. Not the, uh, not the Kisses Church. No. Okay. All right, let me summarize for us, and then we'll see if we have time for comments and questions. Um, so again, every passage has how many authors? Two authors, a divine author and a human author, right? Every passage has two authors. Uh, we should embrace the simplicity of the Bible, understanding it literally in its natural sense, in the normal sense that... Uh, was intended by the authors. And to do otherwise is really to, to change God's word. We have to ask ourselves, who is Lord? Are we as the church Lord of God? Absolutely not, right? Uh, Meganoita, God forbid. We're not Lord of, of the Lord, God. And if we were to take his Bible and we were to say, well, I'm going to understand that in the way that I want to understand. I'm going to spiritualize this text. Um, then we are placing ourselves in authority over God. But if we say, no, God is the Lord of the church and he has given us his word and he has given it to us infallibly in a way that we can understand because he speaks to us in human language, he communicates with us in a way that we can understand, then we need to read his word in a, a literal way so we can understand what it is that he's communicated to us. Uh, we can only determine literary style by first approaching the text in a literal interpret it with a literal interpretive lens. So looking at it, and then we can understand this text is to be taken literally, we should interpret it literally. This text is to be taken figuratively, we need to interpret it figuratively or poetically. Uh, but we need to first approach it with a, a literal interpretive lens. There is one meaning for each text, uh, several different applications. And just because there's one meaning for each text, one interpretation of each text, doesn't mean that everybody's gonna agree on that meaning. It doesn't mean that that meaning is going to be easy to understand, but we have to realize that there is one meaning for every text. And we need to read the Bible contextually, uh, working out in concentric circles, starting with the immediate context first, uh, not importing any different meanings or interpretations from other passages. Uh, we don't want to um, bring different things in. That's eisegesis. We want to, to exegete. We want to draw out of the text what God has communicated to us in each specific text. Any thoughts or questions on those aspects of uh, interpreting the Bible literally and contextually? All right. We're falling asleep. Yeah, just... Uh, so like going back to the 
So like when we're teaching our kids, could, could you say that it's okay to teach them like the uh, preconceived ideas that we already know about the Bible so that they... You know, yes, but it's good to teach them how we came to those conclusions, why we have those yeah. ideas, that they're derived from the text, not just something that um, they should embrace because mom and dad say so. Um, yes, but, it's but, because that's what God has communicated. But yeah, so like, but if like your little kid ever asks a question to Poe, um, does God know everything? And you might say, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we get that from the text. Yeah, it's okay to, to do that. <laughs> All right. Any other thoughts or questions? All right. It's important how we approach the Bible. There are so many different ways to twist it. And again, it's God's holy word. We absolutely don't want to do that. We want to honor it and revere it and uh, do everything we can to correctly divide the word of truth. Logan. Are you going to um, talk on translation? Uh, no, uh, not in this course. We've done that in other <laughs> places. Yeah. But there are multiple translations that are trustworthy and reliable, not just one single one. The message and ones that aren't. Not that one. And many that aren't, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for your word. Pray that you would help us to know it, to learn it, to share it, and to do so uh, with confidence, realizing that you are the one who has preserved it for us and given it to us. And uh, God, help us not to take advantage of the day and age that we live in and the the great blessing and uh, access we have to your word. God, I pray that we would get home safely, that we would wear your name well this week, and uh, that we would return uh, safely on Sunday and that we would honor you all and pray this in your name. Amen.